Well, we can go ahead and get started, I think. It's maybe a minute early while people are wandering in. <clears throat> so uh, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to be back in the United States uh, after my trip to Serbia, and things are going well there. Hopefully I'll be able to update you guys Wednesday night or something. Um, but let's get started in prayer before we dive into church history. I'm glad to see so many fans of church history here. Uh, that does my heart good. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a church to go to, not just in safety, but also that teaches truth. We thank you, Lord, that we are not fearful of heresy being taught in this church, as so many places in the world and we thank you for your actions in the history of man and the history of the world. We pray that you would show us why we need to learn this. We pray that we would apply this to our lives for the purpose and the definition and the goal of the church. And we pray that we could take this not as a dry and staid subject, but something that is helpful for us. May you receive the glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I'm very thankful to be teaching church history because it is my favorite subject in all the world. Now, some people, I don't know what's been happening before here, what Pastor Thad has introduced, but some people, when they think of church history, <clears throat> this is what they think of. And I love old books. I love the whole thing, the font, the color, the washed-outness. I love it all. But I don't think of this when I think of church history. I think more of this. I think of a puzzle and how God is bringing together all of the history of the world to come to the point that he needs the world to be in. I think church history is one of the most fascinating subjects because we see the hand of God like we never have before when we see church history. So this is what I would like to uh, explore today, and I've been charged with a very specific couple of centuries that are very heavy as well. But from my understanding, what's already been covered is two weeks it's been going on, is that right? Nicaea, Athanasius, why we study church history, a little bit of the canon, Constantine, monasticism, persecution and response and origin. I am impressed. That's, that is a tremendous amount of material. So if you guys have learned all that, well done, Pastor Thad. I'm, that's a lot of stuff. I don't have to do quite that much, thankfully. What I have to, <clears throat> and I'm struggling a little bit with the cold, so forgive me. What I've been asked to do is cover a lot of history in a few crucial years, actually between 400 and 600 AD. Now, these are very crucial years in the church, in the history of the church, because these are the years past Nicaea that Pastor Thad covered. These are the years where all the remaining councils and all the heresies and all the doctrines of the church were worked out. These are really, really important years here. These are things that cover what Christ, what kind of person Christ is, who exactly he was, uh, what the ideas are about him, what heresies are wrong, what heresies are deadly. Thank you. <clears throat> it's helpful. So it's something that is, like I said, is very crucial. Now, in my class, when I teach this subject in Serbia, I always teach from the beginning about how this affects, how church history affects the definition and the goal and the purpose of the church. Now, I don't have time to go into how we get to those types of things, but just suffice it to know this is, for my sake, for our sake, this is what we'll go with. And as we go through this lesson, as we go through today, let's look at how what we're learning directly is involved with Christ saves society, the definition of the church, glorifying God, which is the purpose of the church, 
And then the goal is through worshiping him, edifying his people, and evangelizing the world. So that's really what we're looking at. We want to make sure that we know how church history fits in. It's useless to us if we don't take church history and apply it to our lives. So my goal today is to cover three things, at least three things, and that is uh, major councils, uh, Augustine and Pelagius, and then the rise of the Roman church. That's quite a task to do. Hopefully I can squeeze in a little bit of the fall of the Roman Empire. So we'll just, we'll see what the Lord does there. But after Nicaea, there were other ecumenical councils between 400 and 600. There were meetings actually in Constantinople, in Ephesus, uh, in Chalcedon. There was one actually in, in Nicaea in 787, the seventh council. There were six major councils, but the seventh one, we don't really talk about much because it dealt with icons. The Eastern Orthodox Church is called the Church of the Seventh Council because they love everything to do with, with, uh, with icons. And we can talk about that more. But the main thing is, why do we care about councils? How do the church councils that occurred 1,500 years ago, how does that impact our lives? Well, it impacts our lives in this way. John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and the truth. So it addresses the questions, all these counsel, it addresses the questions of who is Jesus? How is he God and man? What kind of mind does he have? Did God really become human? And if he did, how did he become human? Because the early church, of course, believed this. They would give us the thought through verbiage of how we express who this person is that we worship, the person of Jesus Christ, what we believe about the Trinity. And how is this important? Well, it's important because it would last, all those things they came up with would last us 1,500 years, up to today in this class. All of those doctrines that they worked out, very important. So if we worship an aberration, then we certainly are not worshiping the true Christ. Now, I thought about going through some of the heresies, uh, but when we start talking about things like monarchianism and modalism and Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, and Novationism, and Donatism, and all those things, it gets pretty heavy. So I don't want to have this class be brought down with heavy doctrine because it's not really that necessary. I even have a game I play with my class in Serbia called Who's a Heretic? And it's, I don't think they remember anything about my class except that game. Now, thankfully, we don't burn anybody, and we don't point out who actually is a heretic in the class. I think they can do that themselves. But we don't have time, as I said today, to go through that. But one thing to keep in mind as we look at just touching on the councils and what they determine, that the person of Christ was the thing that between 400 and 600 they were particularly interested in. For example, Christ is not just a divine spirit or a mind inside of a human body. And many people are led to believe that. It's surprising how many, how many people can default to that attitude. Because when you read the scriptures that says he is... He is the divine embodied in the flesh. People seem to think they get an idea in their head of, oh, it's the divine embodied in the flesh. And when you think that there is a divine spirit that's encapsulated in a fleshly shell, you've gone into heresy. That's not who Christ is. That's not how Christ is made. That Christ has a human nature as well as a divine nature. That Christ is one person and not two mixed up people. Because why is that important that he was one person and not two mixed up people? It's because he was the God-man, not just the God-bearing man. He didn't just bear God. He, was the, he is the God-man. He was the God-man. That he has two wills, human and divine, not just one. Why is it important 
that we know how many wills Jesus Christ has. That would seem like one of the, most, one of the least important things we should focus on. Why was monothelitism so important to them? Because a will is what defines who a person is. If you don't have a will, you're not a person. You have to have a will. And the fact of the matter is, Christ does have a will. As a matter of fact, he has two wills, a divine will and a human will. This is a very helpful chart that my students find, at least they find helpful. Who is Jesus Christ? He is one person. He is, well, let me back up. Christ is fully God and he's fully man. One person with one substance, two natures and two wills. So fully, fully, one, one, two, two. That is who our Lord is. That is, this is what the councils at the end of these 200 years really came up with. In opposition to all the heretical ideas of who Jesus Christ was, this is who our Lord is. So the thing to remember about heresies is that they're not really opinions that the whole church is taking. It's not like the entire world of the church was confused about this. These are, that's not the way it was. Usually the councils were taken or took place in response to an individual or a group that was arguing for something that seemed unbiblical, so they had to work it out. That's why the councils took place. So individual challenges threaten the health of the church. So that's all I'll say about the councils. I did that in eight minutes. That's the highlight. Second point, the, one of the most important things, the other important things that happened in this time frame was Augustine. I really debated on whether or not I should talk about Augustine and Pelagius, because again, it can get really heavy. But there's some really important things with Augustine, especially with something that he wrote that actually influenced the entire remainder of church history up to today, and people don't talk about it too much. Now, Augustine, uh, obviously, he talked about, or many people know that he talked about the question of, does man save himself or does God save us? Those are the questions that he wrestled with or that he, he talked about. It's obviously important for our salvation, but it's also important for how the world would function in the future. <clears throat> Augustine, as many of you know, came to faith in a very remarkable way, and this picture here kind of illustrates it. That's an unfortunate photograph of Augustine on the left, but it's one of the only things, ones that I could find there. But on the right, it points to, this picture points to how Augustine was saved. And according to his own testimony and confessions, he was, he was brought to a knowledge of the truth when he was in a garden, and he heard the words, take up and read, take up and read. I won't pretend to know the Latin because I'll mispronounce it, and Amy Chafisi will be mad at me, so I won't do that. But he opened a Bible at random, and what he opened it to was Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, making no provision for the flesh. Well, this struck Augustine. That's all he'd ever done. He'd lived in sensuality his entire life. As a matter of fact, at the time, most young men lived in sensuality. It was not unusual for a young man to have a concubine. I mean talking late teens. Not unusual at all. The, one of the church leaders said at that time, one of the marks of a young man turning to Christianity was that he put his concubine aside. It was so rampant, and Augustine, uh, Augustine was, no, was no different than that. He impacted Western Christianity really more than any other church father. Now, the thing to remember about Augustine is that Christianity had actually just become the state religion 20 years before Augustine. He was around 400. It was 380 that Christianity became the state religion. 
new. This is all very new and all very remarkable to him, but yet he would go on to impact the world because of that. He explained the doctrines that the Bible had already taught. He explained that we all inherit a corrupt sinful nature and guilt. He explained the need for a personal experience of God's grace and the sovereignty of God and salvation. And he developed the focus uh, on the burden of sin and man's inability. And all of this was before Calvin. Many people think Calvin's the one that came up with all of these ideas. So if you believe in these thoughts, you're, actu you're actually an Augustinian more than you are a Calvinist, or at least as much as you are a Calvinist. So uh, God had planned to, say, to himself rescue man from this predicament that he found himself in from the foundations of the world. And Augustine, like no one else, showed the true depths of human depravity. But as I mentioned, one of the things that's most particularly important about Augustine is this. He wrote a book called The City of God. He wrote lots of books, lots of works. Some of them are difficult to get through, others not so much. The City of God, people talk about his book Confessions, which is like reading a man's diary. The City of God, though, was actually impactful on the entire world. Why was that? Why was this book so important? Well, this book talks about how all of history is about the building of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of God seeks to honor God. The city of man seeks to honor man. It was two different understandings of the meaning of life and serving God. But what he taught in that is that Christians are not to be idle. Christians are not to be on the sideline watching things. We're not to be separated from the world. Christians are to be very active and very much pursuing the restraint of the city of man and dominating society with the city of God. That's what Christians are to be doing. He stated, the world is there to be captured. Christianity is an anti-society. Christianity is society. Now, the question that we have when we read something like this and that we should be asking ourselves is this, how should we live? Is it that we should be separated from the world? Are we to be militant? Are we to be aggressive in the world? To what degree should we as Christians be involved in the world? That's the question that we need to ask. And that's the question that Augustine raised when he, when he wrote this. How about politically? Should Christians be involved in politics? There is a meeting uh, in the Serbian Baptist Union right now that they don't know, the entire union is meeting like a church council. They don't know what to do with a pastor in Serbia because he has involved himself in politics. He's working for the, the political party there. He's a pastor of three churches, but he's in politics. What do we do about this? Because you're not supposed to be in politics as a Christian. Those are two separate worlds. Well, that's something we don't understand. We think, well, of course you're supposed to be in politics. How else are you going to affect the world? Well, we're Augustinians when we think that way. We very much uh, agree with the city of God. So this book would actually give some motivation for the persecution of heretics and unbelievers and even control of the state by the church. Well, how would that be? Well, if you think, Augustine felt that if the, if the uh, church had the right, or I'm sorry, if the state had the right to control the world, then the church had more of a right. And if heretics were causing a problem in the world and a problem with the church, then the church had the right to pursue and actually to put down and persecute heretics for their heresy. Because this was all in our effort to build the city of God. It was very important to him. Constantine made Christianity legal in 313. I'm sure you've, you've heard about that. Theodosius made Christianity the state religion in 380, but Augustine made Christianity in control of everything. This is the progression of, of how they went. It became the governing ideal and the pattern 
for the entire Middle Ages, from the time of the fall of the Roman Empire all the way up to Luther. This pattern is the pattern that the world lived by, the city of God. Very, very important. It was a dominant force. It even impacted the Crusades, why we went on the Crusades, which I'll touch on next time. But it also impacted, of course, American evangelical Christianity because we live like this. So again, the question is, is the use of, when we read something like this, is the use of force in pursuit of Christian unity and Christian purity, is it necessary? Is it effective? Is it something we should be doing? Should we be using the force of the state or even the force of the church in order to purify society? Is that something that's biblical or not? Those are questions we have to ask ourselves. And I think many today would agree with Augustine that we should be using this. Evangelicalism should be in control. But there's a deeper question, isn't there? What's the deeper question? Who's the force? Which church is in control? Who's the one determining this? The city of God on earth only works if it's pure. And so you have to have a controlling force that's pure. Well, isn't that the problem we came to in the Reformation? Because that force was not pure. So that's the question we have to ask, as, uh, and this is the answer we have to have. It's fine as long as that control is without sin and correct in doctrine, and that goes bad very quickly. On the other hand, he was not without his opponents, <clears throat> and one of his opponents was a man named Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk by the name of Morgan. Now, at this time in Britain, in the year 400, Britain was considered completely barbarian. There were very few churches, very, very little Christianity. It was covered in tribes, Celts, Druids, uh, Angles, Jutes, and Saxons. So, very barbaric. But this man, one of the, he actually was the earliest British writer. He decided that he would promote his own version of Christianity. And the version that he had was, Adam's sin affected only Adam. Each person is born innocent with no sinful nature, and that man can choose to do right, even to live a sinless life without special aid from God. Grace is simply an assistance by God. It's not something required. It's helpful. It's, it's good, but it's not something that's required. It's not necessary for salvation. Now, this came to a doctrine called Pelagianism, and Pelagianism would resurface over and over and over again through the church. We can save ourselves. We can live a pure life. We don't need God. We're not sinful. Man is not totally depraved. All the way up to today, we hear these things today. But it's not Pelagianism that's the problem today, is it? What's the problem today? Some of you know it. What's it called? Is it full Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? It's half Pelagianism. It's, it's a midway point. What is that midway point? Well, the midway point is, well, we can't save ourselves, but we can help. We can help God. We can be co-workers with God in our salvation. The man is a helper. He's a co-worker. He's not so affected by sin that his God-chooser is broken. So that's what semi-Pelagianism taught. Augustine was right, though. The gospel was at stake. Romans 5, 12 through 21 speaks of death in Adam and life in Christ. It is impossible to fit Pelagius' view in with this idea, this biblical idea, that we are totally depraved and that we cannot choose God. It's impossible. You have to do a lot of gymnastics in order to get around it. The truth is, we're born in sin and we're unable to make ourselves righteous. 
we cannot save ourselves, we need a Savior. So, how does this, now I said at the beginning, I always want to make sure that we look at how it fits with the definition and goal and purpose of the church. So I, don't, I want to get back to that because that's what's important. How does this fit in? Well, if Christianity taught that man saves himself, then what does that mean? Well, it means the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. It's ridiculous. It's a total travesty. It doesn't even make any sense. And Christianity really becomes no better than the mystery and the pagan religions that it all replaced. And so we all go back to the drawing board. So that was an overview of Augustine and Pelagius and the idea that man cannot save himself, but that he needs God's sovereignty. So, so far I'm doing pretty good. Now I have the remainder of the time to discuss how did the Roman church get to the point that it got to in 25 easy minutes, hopefully leaving time for some questions. If these weren't heavy enough things, the councils, heresies, Augustine, for the time period, keep in mind they were happening almost exactly at the same time that the entire Roman Empire fell. This is the Roman Empire. <clears throat> it covered, it was the known world. It covered what people thought of as the known world. Imagine if these things were happening. Church councils were meeting all over the world to determine who this man is that we worship. How was he composed? How was he made up? This was happening Books were being written about how we should be aggressive, but at the same time, the United States was completely disintegrating before our eyes. Imagine, and that's just the United States, not the known world. The entire Roman Empire in the space of 100 years disintegrated. This right here fell to pieces. Not exactly all fell to pieces, but did. Now, while the councils and the theological debates were conducted, the West was riddled with political attacks, and the boundaries of the empire were made up of tribes, lots and lots of tribes, the Goths, the Visigoths, the Jutes, the Vandals, the Huns, and so on and so forth, Avars and even the Slavs. These are the ancestors of the residents today of France and Germany and Spain and Central and Eastern Europe. Rome had existed as a force already for 1,000 years, not as an empire, but as a force. The interesting thing, the, good, the, the powerful thing about that is it had been ruled both under one ruler and several rulers. It had split and reunited, but it was these small tribes, this giant empire, it was these small tribes that would destroy the entire Roman Empire. So we have the fall of the city of Rome, which would take place, and then that would lead to the fall of the empire. And I'll just give you a very simplistic way that it fell, an overview of, of how it fell, highly simplified. It's theorized that all these tribes came from the Urals, the, the mountains that separated Asia from Europe. And in the summer of 376, a whole group of Goths, uh, not what we think of today as Goths, but they didn't have any makeup, they didn't wear black. They were actually far worse than that. It's a fascinating study thinking about how the Goths were. They're just, they're an amazing group of people and how they were able to conquer that. But maybe the next time we can go into that. The Goths showed up on the outskirts of the kingdom uh, asking for refuge. There was 200,000 of them, and they said, we need to get away from the Huns, so can we have refuge? And the emperor at that time, Valens, allowed them to come in and he, he, to settle inside the empire. He brought in the very tribes that destroyed his entire empire. 200,000 people destroyed the Roman Empire. Not those, but they were the start of it. So eventually in 410, they would take Rome itself, and they would destroy the city. 
it would be the first time in many, many centuries that the city was, was destroyed. This was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. The reason they destroyed it is because they wanted land. Where they wanted the land is, is well, it's kind of hard to see on this map, but where you see Adrianople there, uh, that's where they wanted the land, and that was ruled by Rome. Why the church was ruling land way over there, I don't know. Uh, but they were, so that's why they wanted that. So they destroyed Rome. In the end, the empire, the defeat was fairly simple because after they took Rome and after they showed their power, then the tribes had already taken many parts of the empire. In 476, this man, another Goth king, defeated a teenage emperor in Rome. So all that to say that the Middle Ages are now starting. The fall of Rome, 476, starts about 500. The Middle Ages went into about 1500. So you have a thousand years of Middle Ages, dark period, medieval times. So they now began in Western Europe, and in truth, though, it was not the fall of the Roman Empire, but it was the fall of half of the Roman Empire. The yellow is Rome, and the green is Constantinople. Altogether, it was the Roman Empire, but the part that fell was actually the part in the yellow. Constantinople, the, the eastern half of the empire, did not fall in 476. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, it wouldn't fall for another thousand years. Not until 1453 when the Muslim Turks came in and took it over. A thousand years, the eastern part of the empire kept going. That's very important for the Reformation. And I'd love to be talking about the forerunners to the Reformation because the fall of Constantinople, I think, caused the Reformation. And I think we'd all not have a Reformation if it wasn't for that. But the Eastern Empire would continue for another thousand years. Although the Roman Empire was finished, the Russian czars would end up later seeing themselves as inheritors of the Roman Empire. And actually, Nazi Germany would even adopt this title as inheritors of the Roman Empire. So, now... The empire has changed, but what about the church? Well, the question usually goes something like this. When did it all go wrong? When did it all get bad? When did the church break away from the unified, pure church that it was and become this Roman Catholic machine? And whatever happened to Christianity in the East? So that's how the question usually goes. And the answer is that the church was never so simple and so pure. That's part of the answer. Uh, it was a highly complex church full of problems alongside the blessings of growth. But it wasn't the pure church that some want to return to today. Oh, if only we could go back to that pure church. If only we could go to where things were more simple. It was a mess. We have much more light, and we should be thankful for the light that we have. But early on, it had not worked out many doctrines, mostly because it was just trying to survive and not be killed. But when Constantine legalized Christianity, all that changed. Now it had time to work on doctrine. Of course, it also had time to get nominal. So that was part of the problem. Now, I often think of Constantine's legacy as being really bad. I think, man, he, he introduced things. He legalized Christianity. That was a bad move for the church. And many people think that because it brought nominalism in the church. But when we think about Constantine's legalization of Christianity in 313, we forget that we have the luxury of looking back in time from a very sterile place. It's easy for us to say, oh, that was bad for the church because persecutions are actually good for the church. It keeps us pure. Well, we'd not like to live through those persecutions. They were happy for that. They were very thankful those persecutions were done. So he made that happen. 
And yes, he did bring in nominalism, but he also brought in the ability and the freedom for us to work out the doctrines that are really so necessary for our faith that we take for granted. Christ is fully human. Christ is fully God. He has two natures. He's one person. We take those for granted. They worked through all of that. So at the time, though, uh, that he did that, there were five patriarchies. Uh, oh, that's his edict of Milan. When I landed in Serbia in, three, in 2013, <laughs> it feels like that. <laughs> and 2013, this was the sign in the airport, the Edict of Milan. It was the anniversary of that edict because Constantine was born in Serbia. And so they were celebrating the Edict of Milan. Then I just thought it was interesting, interesting. That was the first sign that I saw coming off the plane, which told me I was in the right place. There were five head churches between the years 416, or 400 and 600, really from the beginning. You had Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. This was called the Pentarchy. And we're leading, there's a reason I'm telling you this. We're leading up to how Rome got to where it is. This is the Greek Orthodox Church of Alexandria, of Antioch, Jerusalem, and then we start getting bigger. It's Hagia Sophia, that's the church now Muslim, uh, in Istanbul, which Istanbul, Constantinople, Byzantium, they're all the same thing. And then this is the old Peter's Basilica before the new Vatican surfaced. So these were the five churches, but there were many more obscure churches, of course, than these five. These weren't the only five churches in existence. Truth and biblically, biblically solid churches would be found in small ministries all around the world. But the problem is we don't read about them because they're not written about. Why are they not written about? Writing a book back then, very expensive. Only the privileged, the powerful, those with connections could actually write books. We don't read about the little pastors in Owensboro, Kentucky, which there weren't any back then, but we don't, maybe, but we don't read about them uh, because they're not written about. It's just too expensive. Thankfully, we do read about the major uh, writers who actually defended the church. So, the church was tied, though, one of the problems, the church was tied to politics, land, power, and prestige, so that two great powers emerged from the church. And the two great powers were Rome and Constantinople, the two cities. The degradation of the Roman church, though, would happen over time. It was not suddenly. No pope woke up in, woke, woke up in the morning saying, I want to bring down the Roman church, or I want to be powerful, I want to bring down the other church. Not, nothing like this happened. It was a slow, slow process over time and added to it at certain turning points in history. But if there was a pope that actually kicked it all off, it would be this guy. And just look at him. Of course he's going to do something like that. <laughs> that is one shady character. Actually, he was a very, his name is Pope Gregory the Great. And he lived in the year 400s. And he was the juggernaut that started, I would say, in my opinion, the start of the rise of the Roman church. The reason he was able to do this, first off, he was an administrative genius. He administrated and brought, the, brought together the church. And I love administration. I think the word ministry is inside of administration for a reason. So I think that it's really important, if you're going to have an organization, you have to have someone to administrate it. We have over 800 of his letters still in existence because he was so organized. Uh, the secular government of Rome continued to fall. So when the secular government is falling, people are going to look to something. What did they look to? Well, they looked to the church. They had to have something to keep them connected. And the church connected them to the old empire. So this was very, very helpful for them. It was a point of continuity, continuity and it was a stabilizing force. He also had an interest in organized conversions, especially with the Britons, because they were 
um, considered barbaric. And he would send one of his monks in the year 598 to Britain, just before 600, to convert them. And they baptized 10,000 people there in Britain, and they pronounced the land converted. And as a gift, just as a little aside, he gave Augustine uh, the bishopric. He made him bishop of a place called Canterbury. Well, because Canterbury was England. And to this day, the Archbishop of Canterbury is just another name for the Archbishop of England. It's the same thing. Canterbury is England. And so they just continue giving him that title. Gregory was also practical. The Roman Empire was ended. ended. There's no time for speculating on doctrinal niceties, he called it, all these councils. The fashionable debate, he said, over Christ's will in, in Constantinople, that was for grammarians and not active churchmen. Philosophy was for croaking frogs. Now, he also had, Jerome, had uh, the latest publication of the Bible by Jerome. That happened about the year 400 also. It was written in Latin called the Vulgate. Latin was a fresh new language. The Roman church spoke Greek. They did not speak Latin until the year 400. And as a matter of fact, the Greek church only started speaking Greek in the year 600. They dropped the Latin. So this was new and fresh. He had this new book, and he said it was time to get practical. And he stopped thinking about theological education. And the thing that we would learn from him is that a denial of theological education to the clergy and to the masses will ultimately result in a reformation. You cannot deny theological education. You can't say that's not important. Missiology today often takes, unfortunately, a card from this pope, from Gregory. And they say theological education is not important. We just need to be doing. We need to focus on conversions. We need to focus on projects. Theological education is not important. If we miss that, we will be sorry. Whether sooner or later, we will be sorry. Those things are important, but we can't ignore theology. Now, Gregory may have started the rise of the Roman church and the power, but he wasn't certainly the end of it. There's lots of reasons for it. I'll give you eight reasons of my own very quickly. Reason number one, man is always prone to and defaults to salvation by works when we're given the chance. Gregory, <clears throat> and so much more after him, saw the Christian life as a struggle to hold on to grace and to get the forgiveness of a perpetually angry God for our sins. We have to work for that. It was up to man to make use to the, of the grace that God gives him. So in this way, grace was never really sure, never really secure. Second reason, Rome became the administrator of this salvation. So you got to work for it, but Rome's going to administrate it for you because outside of the Roman church, there is no salvation. Extra ecclesium nulla salus. There is no salvation outside. That according to the official Roman Catholic Church teaching, then and now, salvation was by the grace of God alone. They will say that. It's by the grace of God alone. But there's a catch. That grace is actually in the church. It's not available just directly from God. It was, it's in the church because the church held the key to the kingdom. And all the grace that the church received went into this treasury of merit. The salvation medicine was given to and dispensed by the church if you merited it. The problem was the Roman church was not a very nice doctor. You had to merit this salvation, and they didn't give it out very easily. If God had not given it, the world would not have it. But the church, if they didn't release it, the, the world would perish. That was the feeling that they had. The church administers baptism to infants, and after that, you are on your own. 
absolute certainty of salvation was guaranteed by the church if you did everything they told you to do. But what was the problem with that? Well, the problem is the system doesn't work. That's the problem. Baptism doesn't regenerate. Love for God is not produced apart from regeneration. Works that you do would not be meritorious even if they're good works, which they weren't, but even if they're good works. Why were they not meritorious? Anybody can answer that. Why are good works not meritorious outside of being converted? What do you think? Exactly. Exactly. Good works, even someone who, who seems to do good works better than the Christians, are not doing it out of the right motive. John, you had a thought on that? Just I was going to, we need a divine righteousness that only Christ has. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, <clears throat> the works that we do outside of Christ are for our own aggrandizement, our own, our own elevation. So, because all of the sins of an un unregenerate person, according to the church, some are mortal, some are venial, all sins are actually mortal sins. So the Roman church held the power. Reason number three, when the capital moved, when Constantine moved the capital to the east, now once upon a time it was in Rome. When Constantine came along in three, the 300s, he moved it to, according to your map there, Istanbul or Constantinople. When he moved it to the east, it left a giant vacuum in the west. All of a sudden, the church is not there. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the empire is not there. This vacuum was filled by the church. Now look at the geography. You have four major churches here in the east, in the eastern empire. What do you have on the, in the west on the left? You have Rome. Rome was the only thing. It was separated from all the others. And that's a very dangerous position for Rome to be in because it could do many things. Geographically, there was no one around. That led to reason four, corruption in the church. By 250 A.D., Rome was so rich, 250, 250 years after Christ, Rome was so rich it could support a bishop, 46 presbyters, 7 deacons, 7 subdeacons, 42 acolytes, 52 exorcist readers and doorkeepers, plus huge gold, silver, food, clothing, and art treasury, and offices in the church were fought over. There were actually massacres on the steps of the church in Rome, fighting over political offices. The bishops of Rome had money, carriages, women, clothing, feasts, and banquets, even better than the imperial ones. So corruption filled the church. Reason number five, the most powerful of bishops was considered the Roman bishop. It wasn't until really after the 11th century that they started calling him pope. Uh, but bishops, Roman bishops, for example, Clement, they would constantly write letters to other churches, as far away even as Corinth in Greece. And they would give advice on how things should be in the church. Rome was asked questions because Rome acted like a leader. Rome had the answers. They may not be the right answers, but they had some answers. And when someone acts like a leader, oftentimes people go to them as a leader, regardless of whether or not their opinion is right. Reason number six, celibacy in the clergy. This meant not just that they couldn't get married. This meant none of their possessions would go to their children. None of their lands, which they had plenty of, would go to their children, it all stayed inside the church. Very different than the East, very different than other churches. So no legal descendants meant no passing down of lands. Uh, one of the important reasons, I think, reason number seven, theological education. Theological education went down, and it went down quickly. So the quality of preaching went down. They are directly proportional. As education goes down, 
preaching goes down. You can't preach if you're not educated. As that happens, there has to be a rise in the substitute for God's Word. Something has to take its place. In the Western church, something did take its place. Two things took its place, and that is the Eucharist and relics. In the Eastern church, it was experience and meditation and, and mysticism. But in the Western church, relics and the Eucharist, well, if you're not an educated priest... Anybody can pronounce words over bread and wine and make it turn into the body and blood of Christ if that's what they believed. That wasn't hard to do. And the relics, that's right there. You just put it on the thing and you look at it and you, and you venerate it and you kiss it and you pray to it and those types of things. There's a whole theology behind relics, which hopefully we'll get to. In the East, it's the same. Preaching or theology went down, theological education. But anybody can have an experience. Anybody can connect in unity with God. And to this day, the West focuses on justification and how a man is saved. What does the Orthodox Church focus on? They focus on union with Christ. Is union with Christ biblical? Of course it is. We need to be in union with Christ. They have no word for propitiation. They have no idea of justification. It's not even a concept in the Eastern Church. They don't think about it. All they think about is union with Christ. So when theological education goes down, then everything else goes up, unfortunately. And then finally, the last reason there's something that's a little more complex called the donation of Constantine, which I don't have time to get into now, except to say it was a false document that was exposed in the 15th century where supposedly, well, I am getting into it then, uh, Constantine gave the Western Empire to the Pope in the 5th century. So they, they said, well, I guess we, as it happened, they needed a way to establish the papacy as a power in its own right. So they made up this letter, which magically appeared in the 6th century and was exposed as a fraud. But the church operated under this power for so many centuries that it gained it. So, notice what I did not say. I listed eight reasons why the Roman church became powerful. Why did it not become powerful? It was not because the leaders were so godly. It was not because theology was so sound. And it was not because of the godly examples of the priests. None of those were the reasons. It was these other reasons why it became that way. So I have to skip quickly ahead. I won't have time to go into Eastern Christianity a little bit uh, or um, how that came to be. But one thing that I want to, and I'll mention this, Cyril and Methodius. Uh, these were two guys, you see the dates before you, they are single-handedly responsible for the Word of God being in the hands of almost the entirety of Eastern and Central Europe. Single-handedly, these two brothers came from Greece. Um, you may recognize the name Cyril, because that's where we get the word Cyrillic, as in the alphabet. He invented an alphabet. Not only did he bring the word of God and translate it into the local language, but he invented an alphabet. So it was an, these were two were amazing men that, that did that. Uh, so all that to say, where does that leave us? And no time to talk about really today Russia and the countries of Eastern Europe and the Huns, which are really fun to talk about, and how Eastern Europe rose. But we see the Roman church in the year 400 to 600 rising. So what we have, the councils have already decided uh, uh, what the Bible is saying and put words around what is truth about Christ. Augustine and men like him were writing books that would impact Christianity, especially when it, when it comes to how a man is saved and how we're to live. And then finally, the Roman church would rise, not quickly, but slowly to the point that it would that would escape the whole point of the church. How does all this fit in with the definition and goal and purpose of the church? The word of God 
is the most important. Even Cyril and Methodius, the Word of God is what changed it. Augustine, the Word of God is what changed it. The councils, the Word of God is what changed it. The Reformation, and on and on. These are the things, that is the thing, that is the common thread throughout this. How does this help us today? Well, these are the reasons that I have for studying church history. Continuity, encouragement, redemption, sovereignty, and on and on. It helps with thinking about these things as we think about what the church has decided and come up with. These are good reasons to study church history. Rome's own pride enabled it to be brought down by small tribes in the end. Romans 12 cautions us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And that is the essential problem that happened with the early church. It thought more highly of itself than it ought to. We find that they were instilling too much hope and power in an organization. We see that there was a danger of tying the church to the state that, all, that, that Constantine did. Uh, and it develops into something called henotheism, where you have a national God almost. But the word of God keeps the church. That takes us up to the year 600. In 22 more years, a peasant man in the land of Arabia would receive visions, he says, from the angel Gabriel. And he would start the most predominant religion, anti-Christian religion in the world called Islam, and would take over almost all of Europe, uh, were it not for the hand of God. So, that was quick. We have two minutes. We were able to cover councils, Augustine, and the fall and rise of the Roman Empire. That's, that's, that's a lot. So I'll take a break and see, are there any pressing questions or any thoughts or any comments that you have about this? Anything at all? Well, not anything at all, but anything you might want to. Natalie. I think it primarily was because, I'm sorry? What was the question? The question is, do you think that theological education went down because the, the, the word of God wasn't in their hands or because they didn't think it was important? Was that the second part? The leaders, the leaders didn't think it was important. And I, I would say that primarily it was because they didn't have it in their hands. But even the ones who did have it in their hands, they didn't think those nuances, at least in the West, was that important. The East was the, one, were the, was the place where all the councils were going on. It didn't happen in Rome. Uh, but the problem is when the Vulgate was translated and sent to Rome in the Latin, it wasn't a very good translation, and so they, it ended up causing some problems. But primarily it was because the Bible was not in the language that they had or not, in, not available to them. Yeah, good question. Any other thoughts, questions, or comments? Master church historian, any, any corrections? Yeah, I would just say this. I think it's really interesting. You know, Wayne has a perspective on the Eastern church that you almost never get. Um, you know, if you took church history and study, you're just not going to get that much. So it's, I really like this. Super interesting to me, too, because where he's living mm. and, and so, so I, just, I just love it. Also, um, he's got more of these yeah. sheets Thank on you. the back. There's staples in the back if you want to grab heresies on the way back, and uh, we'll have, uh, Wayne will be teaching again in a few moments. In a few more weeks, April 3rd, you will cover the Crusades and how the, the Western and the Eastern Church split. So this chart is just a chart that I came up with on uh, heresies and what they look like today and where they came from and things like that in lieu of us going through that. So 
Could I ask someone to close us in prayer? Please.